Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, a new college of career program at Georgia State University hopes to attract students to research administration. And get this, some selected students get a tuition waiver and a stipend. We'll have more about that in just a moment. Also, we are in the middle of tick season here in Georgia. As cases of Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and other tick-borne infections, they do increase during the summer. So we'll tell you what you should know to safeguard the family, pet, and your household. Important conversations coming up. But first, all this from our WABE newsroom. Congress is calling on the head of a Georgia gunmaker to testify at a hearing later this month. Daniel Defense made an AR-15-style rifle used in the massacre at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, as WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass has more. The House Oversight Committee has been investigating the role of the firearms industry in perpetuating gun violence. Daniel Defense is known for aggressively marketing military-style weapons. After the mass shooting in Texas, the Oversight Committee asked Daniel Defense for information on its marketing strategy and sales. Now the committee wants to hear from Daniel Defense's CEO directly. In a recent letter, committee chair Carolyn Maloney said the information provided by Daniel Defense only heightened the committee's concerns. Daniel Defense has not said whether they intend to participate in the hearing on July 20th. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In related news, UPS will no longer transport components used to make so-called ghost guns. And WABE's Jim Burris has that story. The Atlanta-based shipping giant has updated its policies to specifically ban firearms and firearm components without a serial number. Such parts are largely untraceable and often find their way into gun kits used to build homemade assault-style weapons. Gun industry suppliers report UPS is already confiscating shipments and suspending their accounts. Whether the move has widespread impact largely depends on whether competitors FedEx and the U.S. Postal Service follow suit. A new federal rule requiring that gun components carry a serial number takes effect next month. Jim Burris, WABE News. And safety and precaution, that's why Clayton County Public School students will only be allowed to carry clear book book bags when they return to school this August. Now, school officials say the mandate is a safety precaution for students and staff. Officials did not specify if the new policy is because of the rise in mass shootings nationwide, including on school campuses. The district is asking families to buy the backpacks, but says it will provide them for students as needed. An investigation by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution found close to 100 weapons were seized on Clayton Public Schools buses or on school grounds this last academic year. Those weapons included an AR-15 assault rifle, a Glock 48 handgun, as well as knives, brass knuckles, stun guns, and tasers. 
This month marks the beginning of Georgia's new Mental Health Parity Act. Now, it's designed to expand access to affordable mental health and behavioral health services across the state, as we hear from Jess Mador. The Mental Health Parity Act, passed earlier this year, is designed to overhaul Georgia's mental health system. That means for the first time in the state, all health insurance companies have to cover mental health conditions on par with physical ones, so patients can no longer be denied medically necessary treatment. The law also mandates insurers collect and report data on compliance. Potential violations can be investigated. The law also establishes a new mental health parity officer in the state insurance department to oversee the law's implementation. Hiring for that position has already begun. Jess Mador, WABE News. And finally, funding applications are open for families with students requiring special educational needs. These are households that could use some help funding because of the education costs due to the pandemic. Now, according to the governor's office and the Georgia Department of Education, parents and caregivers can also apply if their kids are in private school or homeschool. The application from the Department of Education is open through the end of the month. Governor Kemp set aside $10 million in COVID-19 relief funds to offset costs specifically for parents and guardians of students with these special needs. You'll find more on our website. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And from WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia State University is rolling out a first-of-its-kind program this fall. What's that you say? Well, the goal is to create a career path in the field of research administration. And also, as the university sees it, identify ways to attract, quote, talented workers. It's the Access to Careers in Research Administration, ACRA program, is touted as a college to career pathway for the recruitment of what else? Research administrators. So are they doing it now? Well, let's ask Tim Denning. He's vice president for research and economic development at GSU and Candace Ferguson, associate director of research training. They join the program now. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you. Someone listening says, okay, we'll start with you, Tim. Define research administration and Maybe give us some examples of some specific careers and positions. What are we talking about here? Sure. So at the highest level, research administration is really a dynamic network of both functions and individuals that support both faculty and staff research activities and aid in translating those activities into successful outcomes. So just to give you a flavor of some of those functions, um, those include helping researchers to identify funding sources and sponsors and apply for grants. Mm-hmm. It includes managing funding for those grants and the fiscal sh- stewardship associated with that, as well as reporting of requirements. It encompasses um, ensuring compliance and institutional policies and federal laws. 
Um, it also includes maintaining safe and secure environment for conducting research. And um, as well as coordinating research with collaborators, both inside and outside of the institution. And then just a few of the specific jobs and, and the ecosystem in which these exist. It's not just within the university setting, also mm -hmm. hospitals, nonprofits, and other entities. But some of the specific jobs are grant managers, development officers, contracting officers, technology licensing associates, research compliance officers, and accountants. So as you can appreciate, Rose, it's uh, research administration is truly a vast ecosystem of functions and jobs. That's pretty cool. Candace, what do you want to add to that? Um, I think Tim very much hit the nail on the head. Um, we definitely see this as a field that's continuing to grow and develop, and it's continuing to have further offshoots as we go on, as more um, areas in unique situations um, develop as faculty find more innovative ways to do research and to collaborate with one another. It tends to create um, further job responsibilities and, and career possibilities for us as well. Well, Candace, I'm going to put you on the hook here. Define, if you were doing a job description, someone said, okay, Candace, what are the characteristics of someone who is, it's like a book, the, the, the seven habits of highly effective research administration, administrators, what would be in that book? So within that book, I always say that you have to have the appropriate attitude and aptitude to be a research administrator. So in terms of attitude, we're looking for someone who certainly has a servant's heart or a servant's spirit. We are really here to facilitate the amazing developments that our faculty do and to be of service to them and helping them navigate um, some of the complexities that may arise with their research. Um, so in addition to that, having great communication skills written and verbally, um, we're certainly looking for folks that have experience using, you know, Microsoft Office Suite and other uh, technologies that faculty are interacting with and using to um, create collaborative working boards and strategizing their research and things like that. Um, and we're also looking for someone who is very much interested in um, facing unique challenges, critical thinking skills, and also who's very interested in learning more about a new and emerging field. Critical thinking skills. I want to come back to that in just a moment. Tim, what do you want to add to what Candace said in terms of what are the characteristics of someone that will be really good in this type of field? We talk about research administration. Yeah, absolutely. I think team player is what immediately comes to mind. Just thinking of research as a, as a many links to the chain and wanting to contribute to that overall ecosystem. I think as you know, many of us may have in our minds when we think of research, like somebody holding up a beaker and those, those laboratories or chemical reactions are being done. But research is so much more broad and encompasses the humanities, the arts, the social sciences. And these jobs support um, kind of stem to stern, if you will, all of the different aspects of research. So somebody wanting to be involved in and being a real team player. So let me ask you this, why Georgia State, why are you all now offering this? Because you all sort of created this, this program, correct? Yeah, I think we really took advantage of an opportunity and just the, the brief backstory is it emerged from two major challenges that, that we've been facing. And I think many universities have been facing. So one, um, it really came to my attention when I was a graduate program director that, that the majority of graduate students, they were craving career paths distinct from the quote unquote traditional roads mm -hmm. to say becoming a professor um, and running their own research program. Um, but despite wanting these new avenues, they were unaware of many of them that existed. And even when they knew that they existed, 
they often felt under 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 prepared for them. And so that was the one challenge on one hand that a lot of students and not really knowing about that. And then the other side of the coin was um, within the Office of Research having um, a narrowing of a highly and you know highly competitive pipeline of workforce. Um, and for many of these positions and the pandemics has just really augmented that. Well, let me ask you all this and Candace, you can first, if you want to add on to anything that Tim said, but am I to believe that folks coming, wanting to work in research administration, were you, could you get a major, a degree in research administration or did you have to couple it like as a specialty under some other discipline? Well, um, to your point, Rose, uh, one of the running jokes in our field is no one says I want to be a research administrator. So you said that. I didn't say that. I don't want to speak. <laughs> so just make sure you well, say it again. Yes. Well, the reality is no one thinks to say it because there were no undergraduate degree preparation programs for this field. Um, the field itself is still very much emerging. And so a lot of training and, and professional development has been in terms of either sink or swim, you either get in it and figure it out, um, or there are a few institutions like Georgia State who hire full-time trainers like myself that develop curriculum programs for onboarding new staff and new employees. Well, okay, let's talk about your position then. Where do you begin when you Georgia State says, okay, Ms. Ferguson, we got you now, help us come up with this and then what are you giving them are you the you're helping with the curriculum but what else are you saying look these are some of the courses they have to take these are the folks that you can identify these are the folks that maybe we can pull don't pull them from the journalism department but these are <laughs> folks that we you know maybe pull them from over here do you have to maneuver through all that and take the university executives through all that so they can understand exactly what you're coming up with so essentially, um, what I do is is very collaborative, and I work with a number of subject matter experts across campus to develop our curriculum. Um, and essentially, we focus on a few unique areas that are related to um, kind of the national standard of the body of knowledge um, for research administration, and then also some nuances of how things work at GSU. And so uh, we focus greatly on things like contract management, mm -hmm. institutions knowledge, we focus on proposal development, budget development, um, award administration, financial management, I mean, research compliance, it's, it really is vast and it touches just about every aspect of how the university functions as a whole um, because of the regulatory guidance that um, governs how we conduct research. Tim, are there any other institutions that you all could have looked at to, to model or there was a template that you all could have used? Said, okay, Candace, here is a blueprint for you. Or did you all just leave it up to Candace? And Candace really is the guru behind all of this. And she'll get a building named in her honor in a few years. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, you know, Rose, when we first started thinking about these challenges I mentioned before, um, you know, sit down in the, with a web and start to, to type in there and see what exists out um, amongst other universities. And what we quickly found is there's very, very few programs that exist um, and, and they're largely underdeveloped. It's a fairly new field, if you will, to you know, really thoughtfully and thoroughly train individuals for careers in this. There was one at UC Berkeley that I came across that I was very interested in, and I highlighted to Candace and her colleagues. But beyond that, we really struggled to find models. And in fact, we think this is one of the reasons that um, Encura decided to fund um, this work so that there can be more like 
this, and we hope to be a model for the for the nation. The voice you hear is Tim Denning. He's vice president for research and economic development at Georgia State. I'm also in conversation with Candace, and Fer- Candace Ferguson, associate director of research training, and we're talking about the new access to careers in research administration. Now, let's talk about who you all are type, the type of students you all want to recruit here. Um, what does that look like, and, and who are these students? Well, um, we are basing our recruitment off of a survey that was conducted in 2019 that really looked at research administration nationally as a profession and what backgrounds people were coming from because as I said before we don't have um, a formal college to career pathway yet Mm -hmm. and so um, essentially we are targeting students within backgrounds such as business law We're targeting students from the humanities. We're also targeting students from the sciences. I myself have a background in biology and just fell in love Mm -hmm. with um, assisting faculty and working with their research. Um, We are also looking at people with backgrounds in in education and also policy studies. Well, let me ask you this then. Overall, so how will this program work then? So you've targeted the students. They say, well, I'm interested. They want to apply. Then what? How do you set them up on the right courses? So um, essentially what we do is we have a formal curriculum that we pair with on-the-job mentored rotations. And so when we start our cohort in the fall, those students will come in and have the first seven weeks be formal instruction where we'll provide um, foundational training and also pre-award training regarding proposal development, budget development, um, institutional background knowledge, working with sponsors, things of that nature. Um, And then the second um, portion of that semester will be spent being placed on a team Mm -hmm. um, where they'll have the experience to practice and apply some of the concepts and the skills that we'll be providing during the formal instruction. Um, And then in the fall, or I'm sorry, in the spring, when we reconvene after winter break, um, they will come back to us for the final finalizing of their formal training. So we will cover compliance. We will talk about how to manage the financial aspects of an award and Mm -hmm. also the terms and conditions and contractual obligations. And then they will do their rotation for their post-award portion of the program. And then in the summer, um, they have the opportunity to do a capstone project, which will really be um, a way of kind of assimilating all that they've learned and applying those critical thinking skills to solve a unique problem um, or propose a solution uh, or improvements to issues in research administration. Tim, let me ask you this because I understand that there is going to be another incentive here and I, and correct me if I'm wrong. I read about tuition waiver and a stipend because you mentioned money to college kids usually get their attention. Absolutely. So that's an incredibly valuable piece of this. So not only the support from Encura, but both within the university, we wanted to provide support so that this wouldn't be burdensome on the students, but a real opportunity to not only gain the skills that Candace has just um, highlighted, but also to have the real world um, approachability, if you will, in terms of tuition waivers and um, a stipend such that they they don't have to have competing jobs. um, They don't have to have other competing interests and they can really delve deeply and maximize um, the, the value that it, they extract from this program. Is there a maximum number of students that you all can take in this first phase here? I think the plan was to start out with four. 
And, um, you know, we wanted to start small, if you will, and really make sure that we hone the way this program is working. Um, starting with graduate students, we have an eye towards expanding it to undergraduate students down the road. But um, first start out small, make sure we work out any kinks in the system, and then um, proceed from there. And then what assessment, I mean, what metrics will y'all be using in, in order to track, particularly on the, on the students during this progress? I mean, will you have them, will you check in with them, do interviews, or you have to submit some type of, you know, journal along the way? So um, essentially what we will do is to assess formal instruction, there will be some content-based assessments that will be delivered um, during the instruction process. So we will have, of course, um, pre-examinations that will be a midpoint assessment and then a final assessment. And then we're also having um, the teams that the interns will be placed with, the mentors will be also giving an evaluation of the individual's career readiness, as well as some of the soft skills um, that they will be demonstrating during their rotations. And Candace, is there training then for the mentors and the other educators who are involved? Because if you, you we started out talking about how this field, a lot of people don't know much about it. And then Tim mentioned there was a lack, you, you saw a lack in your own institution. So I imagine you had to train some folks in order to train the students. Yes. So um, my collaborators, um, Kay Gilstrap and Kathleen Halley-Octa, um, who are in our university research centers and our college of education, respectively, um, they assist me in doing train the trainer. So um, the individuals and the teams that we will be placing mentor or interns with um, have been trained, have gone through a number of my training programs that I do for our employees and really have been selected carefully to ensure that um, our interns get the best possible mentorship and experience. Now, speaking of interns, and my intern does not know I'm going to do this, I'm going to invite Lennox Johnson. She's our intern from Mount Holyoke College to get on the mic over there. Shelly's going to turn her mic on. And she's going to ask you questions because she's the perfect candidate to ask these questions because she's a college student. So, Lennox, have at it. Um, I'm wondering what the scope of research is available to students who are interested in this kind of program. So when you say scope of research, are you referring specifically to the Capstone Project itself? Yes, within the Capstone Project. So within the Capstone Project, we really are looking for um, things that could be novel in concept. So a particular example could be, um, there's a strategy for a way um, to improve faculty collaborations with collaborators outside of the institution to find a better way for them to um, pull together uh, all of their collaborating documents and, and coordinate their proposal submission process more efficiently and more effectively across multiple institutions. Um, but it really is more of the sky's the limit it. We do pair our interns with an advisor who does have a background in research administration to kind of help them um, in terms of what would be feasible and maybe a little more realistic. But we really are looking for innovative approaches. What else you got, Lennox? <laughs> and what you mentioned that students are moving into the workforce after being part of these kinds of programs. What research skills are they learning that are um, great for them to have able to apply when they're moving into the workforce? So uh, some of the skills that we are hoping to instill and develop um, within our interns, certainly that critical thinking piece, I think that is 90% of um, 
how we have to navigate this very complicated field that is research administration. Situations and circumstances change daily with research and you have to be able um, to be resourceful and adaptive and helpful um, to faculty because the goal is to continue to further the research and further those discoveries. See what I did there? I prepared you all, Candace. Yes, you did. I appreciate it. <laughs> Let me ask you this, because I know someone listening saying, okay, Rose, perhaps, you know, this is for me, or perhaps I'm going to make sure that my student hears this program, and then they say, how much money are we talking here, possibly, you know, in, in, in a field related to this? So are you talking for positions? Yeah. The range of positions? Um, so we are currently doing some benchmarking at our own institution. So it really depends on the type of institution you're with, where it's located, if you're located in a large metropolitan area, mm -hmm. um, or if you're working with a primarily undergraduate institution, which is typically a smaller outfit. Um, but typically our salaries range from $55,000 and upward. All right. Tell them how much you make. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Rose, I would say that many of these positions, I think, I'm just uh, students are going to find very attractive. Yeah. Um, the salaries are probably far higher than they may have imagined. So hopefully they'll get excited about that as well. How, speaking of uh, being excited as we begin to wrap up, how excited are you, Tim, about this program? This is, this is one of a kind. This is new. So this is on you all in terms of the success. Is there a little bit of nervousness here? Are you all pretty excited? Absolutely. With with excitement. So there's always a little bit of nervousness and that's a good thing. Um, but we, again, really, really hope to be a model for this. Um, I think we have the right team leading it. Candace is fabulous. Her two colleagues, Kay Gilstrap and Kathleen Haley-Octa, are just a fabulous team. And we have partnership from um, Lisa Armistead, who's the dean of the graduate school. So a fabulous team and we're we're just ready to go. The grant money that you all received, Tim, that goes specifically for the for the stipend and for the training. Is there any other cost involved? You are you all hoping to get more money, or will the university hopefully see that this is something they need, and then maybe work it into the budget? Absolutely. So even with this first um, first foray into this field, there was a partnership between Incura, who's uh, you know su supported this grant as well as the university to add to the overall um, financial support. So we really hope and expect to scale this. And we're hoping organizations like Incura and others, once they see the model successfully working, would be more eager to invest in it and All partner right. with the universities. All right, Candace, I'll give you the last word here. You know, your hope, desire for this program. You know, it really is my goal because I am 37 years old. I entered this field 12 years ago and I was one of the youngest people in the field and I'm still one of the youngest people in the field. What I want to see is that I am no longer the youngest person in the room where it happens. I wanna see new and innovative approaches. I wanna see um, Generation Z get in this field and get involved and bring all of that vigor and all of that innovation and all of that fresh, blood and energy and thoughts um, into this field because research is ever changing, it's ever mm -hmm. expansive. And if we don't continue to innovate and change our approaches and how we support it, we become stagnant. And that is not something that an institution like GSU is interested in doing. Well, let me ask you this before we, we say goodbye. Do you think then that there needs to be more in terms of, I don't call it marketing or campaigning, but 
just introducing this field then to kids in, in high school? I mean, we, often we talk about the importance of introducing STEM at an early age. But when we talk about research administration, how helpful would it be for you all to maybe partner with a, a public school district and, and talk about this field to their high school students? Absolutely. It's it's absolutely critical. And um, INCURA, um, the National Council of University Research Administrators that provided um, the funding for this program, they do have a number of programs where they go out and they do do career days and presentations and speak to um, high school students and um, elementary school students even. They even have a children's book that explains what research administration actually is. I think the critical piece for us now is really creating that pipeline in that pathway to say, okay, you know about it, you're interested in it. So how do we get you career ready? How do we get mm -hmm. you prepared to be successful in creating some career longevity? Candace Ferguson, Ferguson, Associate Director of Research Training. Tim Denning, Vice President for Research and Economic Development, both at Georgia State University. And we're talking about their new program, which is going to launch, roll out this fall, it's the Access to Careers and research administration. We'd love to talk to some of the students when you get them involved in the program. Thank you both. Absolutely. Thank you both for taking the time. Having. Good conversation. Thank you, Thank you so much. And you can't have my intern Linux because she's <laughs> got to go back to Mount Holyoke. <laughs> Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. Have you had a TikTok with your family or even the family pet? Relax. Yes, ticks are nasty little bugs, but they're nothing to be afraid of. Ticks are tiny. They're small enough to fit on your pinky nail. And even though they've got eight legs, they move barely faster than a snail. That's not very scary at all. If they're so slow, how do they get on you? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. That animation, TikTok, featuring Raji and the family dog, Alex, courtesy of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. Of course, there's a lot more health information that is useful during this time of the year. Georgia is in the midst of its tick season because ticks are mostly active in the warmer months. And according to the Georgia Department of Health, the lone star tick and the black-legged tick, or deer tick, well, they're the most common you'll find here. And over 300 new, uh, over 300,000 new cases of Lyme disease from deer ticks are estimated to occur every year in the U.S., which makes Lyme disease the most frequent tick-borne infection in North America. Now that main culprit or the transmitter of Lyme disease, deer ticks. And this is now where we welcome Dr. Duffy Jones, Dr. Veterinarian Medicine and founder of Peachtree Hills Animal Hospital, and Dr. Gwyneth Francis, infectious disease doctor with Piedmont Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. I appreciate Thank it. Let's begin. Thank you for having me as well. Thank Abs you. Absolutely. Let's begin here because we don't hear a lot about tick infection-related deaths in the U.S., but certainly there are diseases related to these cases. I take it both of you would like to see maybe more awareness when tick season's in full swing. Dr. Jones, what do you think? Of course, you know, we see probably more ticks on animals than we do on people just because of their exposure and where they go and running through the woods and other things like that. And so for us, 
we talk about ticks a lot because we want to really try and keep the pets as safe as we can. We also know that sometimes we'll get some hitchhiker ticks. So the, they'll kind of jump on the dogs, maybe not mm -hmm. attach, but then they'll get, be um, more transmissible to people. And that's what we really want to try and prevent. So we talk a lot about flea and tick health uh, in our office and really try and um, use a lot of these products that can really prevent ticks from attaching and repellents and also kill ticks should they attach. And Dr. Francis, often, and I just had a, a conversation we t in the summer, we talk about heat-related deaths. We've talked about, you know, drowning prevention and, and the importance of getting folks swimming lessons. Uh, would you like to see more awareness in terms of tick season when it's in full swing here? Yes, definitely would like to see more awareness. We know that all tick bites do not result, like, in any type of disease. But we would like to see everyone be more aware, do tick surveillance, wear the appropriate clothing, wear deep if needed to prevent tick-related illness. Dr. Francis, let me stay with you. Do you think there's this misperception that ticks are mostly found in the rural or countryside as opposed to urban areas? I definitely agree that um, the community does think it's more rural. I mean, we can find them in shrubs and high grass and um, brushes in the area, just like um, was recently said, our pets can bring them in. I personally have been in a bouncy house and saw a tick crawling next to me, so I don't think it has to be rural at all. I know for sure. Now, Dr. Mm -hmm. Francis, you just scared a lot of folks who were going to have a bouncy house for their kids' <laughs> summer birthday party. You just put the kibosh on that, so thank you for that. We can't have our bouncy house because of Dr. Francis. But I'm glad you did say that. Dr. Jones, often we think of the family pooch as the main uh, carrier for ticks or other, but are there pets also at risk? I mean, folks that have birds, I have a friend who has a ferret, I have a friend that has a potbelly pig. Uh, are those animals also, uh, should folks be checking as well? Yeah, always on that. We don't see as many on birds and we don't see as many on ferrets. A lot of ferrets aren't roaming kind of wild in the in the backyard and other things like that just because they tend to get themselves into trouble when they go outside uh, kind of unattended. So dogs and cats tend to have more exposure than anything else. And so, but it's always good to look because even if tick, ticks will jump out of the environment on things that move. So it doesn't matter if it's a person, it doesn't matter if it's a pig, doesn't matter if it's a ferret, they're gonna jump on and could, they may not attach, but they could bring them into your house where they could attach onto you. And let's talk about that because Dr. Francis, let's get some clarity for our listeners here. For humans, a tick bite doesn't necessarily mean one will contract a tick-borne infection or does it? That is completely correct. It does not mean that when you get a tick bite, you're gonna get a tick related illness. Um, but what we want to do, like you said before, is increase the awareness that if you've had a tick bite, the things that you should look for um, in regards to having a tick-borne related illness. Usually the tick has to be on for at least four hours in certain situations attached to you for at least four hours to so up to 48 hours before you could develop an illness from a tick bite. Well, let's talk about that for our listeners and what are the symptoms and you don't want to scare anybody, but First of all, are there any physical signs that may be swelling or anything? And then from there, what are, could be some of the other symptoms? So uh, in regards to limes, um, we're not the number one in the U.S., but we do get a little bit of limes every year. Um, the most common symptoms for limes would be like a rash that develops, hopefully like usually develops in about 40 to 50 percent of patients who are going to develop limes. Mm -hmm. And then usually what is like what you will see in majority of our tick-related illness is that you have a flu-like illness. You can have a fever, a headache, feeling fatigue, um, certain 
tick-borne related illness like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. You may have a rash that start on the limbs and then spread to your chest. So those are all different um, symptoms you can have. Sometimes patients will, will complain, excuse me, of headaches or nausea or vomit or even abdominal pain. And so we just want to increase our, our awareness that if you had a tick bite within four weeks, just be aware of those symptoms. I want to get to the and pet. let your provider know. Sorry. <laughs> and no, absolutely. I want to get to the pets in a moment. I want to stay with you for a moment as well, because how long again? I want some clarity. How long after someone they they've got a they remove the tick or they had a tick bite? How long do you think it could take for them to develop those symptoms? If there are if they if it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, they usually will develop symptoms within one to four weeks after the tick bite. Okay. Uh, Dr. Jones, let's get to the family pooch, which is our our beloved pets here. Um, but a tick bite, I mean, usually folks now, they go and they get the preventive treatments and all that. But if you do remove a tick from your, your, your family pooch here, do you just want to monitor it or what should folks do? And also, maybe we back up, how do you properly remove a tick? Well, the good news, I'll start, I'll kind of start with the good news. The good news is only about five to 10% of dogs that have a tick bite will actually get a tick-borne disease. And there's multiple tick-borne diseases that we look at, everything from Lyme's to Rocky Mountain spotted fever, same thing we see in humans. So the good news is that even with a tick, the, the percentage of actually contracting disease is low. So I'm happy about that. So the prevention, uh, the preventatives that we have, are really, really effective, especially in the pets. And so most of the time they're gonna, even if the tick does get on your pet, it will die before it has time to really transmit any of these diseases. If you do find a tick, what you really wanna do is you really wanna try and get the head of it. So a lot mm -hmm. of times what we end up doing is trying to either drop a little alcohol on there to get it to squirm a little bit, and then we slowly back it out and make sure you remove all parts of the tick. And this has been, uh, listen, depending on when you ask, everyone's going to swear by their, the, now, again, this is you, you're the expert. Back in the day, it was the old flea and tick collar, <laughs> Miro's yep. commercials, yep. and with the happy dog. And then, you know, now we've come to the treatments with the drops that you can do every three months or something like that. What do you suggest? Because some folks think, well, I'll just get the flea and tick collar and we'll be fine. I think this is a real good conversation to have with your vet, depending on the, the specific needs of your pet and mm -hmm. the specific uh, illnesses that they have too. We have some really effective oral medications and we know just from studies that the oral medications, because we can actually see that go into the dog, it will actually be more effective because we can actually see it's on. Sometimes collars aren't placed on right, drops aren't placed on right. The problem is that some dogs can react to those. The mm -hmm. same with the collars and the same with the topical. So while the we have really good prevention, the hard thing is it's very hard to kill ticks. They're very resistant to, mm -hmm. to a lot of things. And so the medicines that we typically use are very targeted to the specific tick, but can have some adverse effects on your dog. They're small, but you definitely want to talk to your vet about which one uh, works best for your pet and which one's going to be right for your needs. Like if your dog swims a lot, collars may not be real great. Mm -hmm. Topicals may not be great. If they don't do a whole lot, then those may work. If you're going on vacation and you're going to a high tick area, collar may be perfectly fine just for that short time that you're there. So just have a conversation with your vet. And much like in the conversation I had with Dr. Francis, with your pet, are there any, if, if the dog does uh, somehow develop a, the disease from a, a tick bite, are there some symptoms or behavioral patterns a, a, an owner could look for? 
These are very subtle. And the hard thing is that it, because of the fur, we don't usually see the tick rash that we typically can see in humans. And sometimes we can see swell. We see a lot of joint issues, um, especially with Lyme disease um, in dogs. And so all of a sudden you'll see what we call a shifting leg lameness, meaning that they're lame on one leg, then another leg, then this mm -hmm. leg, and we'll find some joint swelling. And then that's what we'll start to look for tick-borne disease. Sometimes you may never see the tick that attached or didn't attach or anything along those lines. So it can be very, very difficult. And usually tick-borne diseases, we have some certain signs that we will put that on our list of things that could possibly be causing it. And we'll start to work down the list of, of, of those. And usually we try and rule out ticks pretty quickly. We do test for a lot of tick-borne diseases when mm -hmm. you get your uh, annual heartworm test. That's We're testing for multiple tick-borne diseases as well, too, because we found that if we can pick them up before we see clinical signs, we have a much better chance of treating on them without having them get very sick. Let me ask you this, and Dr. Francis, you may be able to answer this, or, or even Dr. Jones. Ticks, because they don't necessarily die when they fall off. They can go on to a, a, another human or another animal. Are they trans? Can they transmit some other type of infectious disease or something to another, I guess, host is a better word. I don't know if there's a better word for that. Do we know that? I can take it from the animal side that we don't think so. So we don't think that we can have what we call zoonotic diseases going from animal to animal or animals, mm -hmm. people through the tick. The tick can has the way Lyme works is it has to actually reproduce in the tick. So it actually needs the tick as a vector to be able to spread it for the Lyme, the bacteria to the rickettsial disease to actually be, um, uh, effective in the body. We don't see a lot of diseases from ticks going from dogs to dogs, like mm -hmm. flu or anything along those lines. Not sure on the human side. That's a little out of my, out of my scope. Well, that's why we got Dr. Francis. What do yeah. we know about that? Well, definitely. I think one of the questions is you're not going to see a spread from human to human. These are all tick related illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, just like Dr. John said, it's like you're going to, it has to get into the body of the tick and then it has to be attached to you for a certain amount of time. And then that's how it, the, the infection actually goes from the belly of the tick and then it gets transferred into, and that's how we get ill. Oh, well, let me, let's talk about treatment then, Dr. Francis. Uh, and, I'm, and, mm -hmm. and sadly, we know there have been some deaths related to um, tick-borne infections, but what are the typical treatments for humans here? The typical treatments, despite all the different um, tick-related illness we have here in Georgia, um, Ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and Lyme's, they're all treated with doxycycline. Um, doxycycline is a medication, you've probably heard about it, you'll take it twice a day. The duration of the treatments will um, vary from illness. Mm -hmm. um, one might be five to seven days, the other one might be 10 days. And so sometimes you'll see a physician might give you one in the middle and say, hey, Justin, to air in the side of caution, let's just give you this to cover everything. Because it takes a while before the blood work will catch up with the diagnosis of the tick-related illness. And much like we know with other illnesses, you know, how it affects one person may be different in another person. If someone has, are there any pre-existing conditions that for an individual that they might have a more severe case of, of Lyme disease or any other tick-borne infection if, based on any other pre-existing condition they have? Not that I know of. I know that, you know, it's your overall general health. But there's no like pre-election, I guess, for um, having a worse outcome at not um, having a, a worse outcome. What am I saying? Excuse me, a worse outcome compared to having like another in infection or another medical illness. But if we do have multiple comorbidities, then there's a chance that it can push you mm -hmm. over into something that's more severe compared to someone who have less comorbidities. If that makes sense. 
Dr. Jones, what are some of the common mistakes you think pet owners make in terms of trying to do their own self-treatment here um, as it relates to their pets? And even with, whether it's removing the ticks or, you know, I mean, some folks say, well, I know my grandpa used to do this and we pour this on the dog. It's like, no, we don't we don't do that anymore. No yeah, offense to your grandpa. See- <laughs> yeah, uh, veterinary medicine has advanced a lot since grandpa was treating <laughs> own dogs in the backyard. So a lot of times just, uh, you, you know, we have really, really good products and they're very safe. So just talk with your vet about which ones to help remove ticks. And if when in doubt, run them in. We're happy to take ticks off for people because we want to make sure it's done right. Um, you know, the big thing for us in treatment of Lyme and what we tend to see is that people tend to miss the diagnosis because mm-hmm. it looks, it's very subtle. It can look like natural aging, especially in an older pet where they just look like they've got some arthritis and other things like that. And so for us, when you start to see changes in your kind of your normal pet's health that you think maybe a little abnormal, just come on, check with your vet so we can look for Lyme. Uh, we can try and treat it if we see it. The good news, we treat it exactly the same way as you do in people. We use a lot of doxycycline. Our biggest problem with doxycycline is we have a lot of vomiting mm-hmm. that occurs with it in pets. And so we have a couple other drugs that we tend to mix in with it and, and move around on to see if we can get it under control. And Dr. Jones, if left untreated here for a pet, well, worst case scenario, what happens is, is it's an immune reaction to, mm-hmm. to it. And so what happens is we see joint and we see a non, um, we see kind of like an arthritis type. We see a lot of joint swelling, things like that. Worst, worst case is that actually we can get those immune complexes that deposit in the kidneys and we can actually see some pets go into kidney failure. Unfortunately, sometimes that is the first time we pick it up that mm-hmm. the pet, we didn't know they had it. The pet comes in, we see elevated kidney values. We see some evidence of some early kidney disease, and then we figure out that they had Lyme disease. Usually when we get to this stage of having some kidney issues, that is not a great outcome that we see. We want to catch it way before that time. Well, Dr. Jones, I want to just really focus on this because earlier I asked a question about the misperception that, you know, people think, oh, ticks probably more out in the rural or in the countryside, but here in the Atlanta area, and look, we all love our dogs, especially. Goodness, I see about 20,000 every day on the Beltline, and I love them as well. But what do you want folks to really take from this conversation about making sure that they are, they have the proper tick prevention approaches or, or therapies or whatever for their for their dogs? Ticks are amazing creatures and they live everywhere. Like don't think just because you live in a high rise or you live in a city that there aren't ticks around. There are ticks around and we find them all the time in our office and we show them to people and people are, you know, they, they're like, I can't believe we have a tick. I'm like, don't worry about it. This is, this is normal. So don't think that you don't need the protection because your pet doesn't have exposure, just being a pet and what they do for a living and going outside and things like that. They have exposure and we really can be so many, so much more proactive by keeping the ticks off of them and prevent most of these diseases just with good flea and tick control. And Dr. Francis, for folks, taking the family pooch out, we're all going hiking, we're all going camping. For humans to protect themselves, what do you want folks to know? So for humans to protect themselves, we want to make sure that they are very aware that there is a possibility of getting a tick bite, tick bite that can result in illness. So one, we want to make sure that they're doing daily tick surveillance when they come back from hiking with the family, a nice hot shower and making sure there's nothing there. Ticks like to hide in areas that are nice and warm and the belly button and the armpits. Make sure you pay attention to that as well. If you're going out, try to wear clothing that's comfortable. If you're going to wear long pants, tuck those pants into your socks as well. And then you want to use DEET as well as another um, layer of protection. Make sure it's 20% of DEET or more, and that'll help ticks from attaching to you. Make sure when you apply it on kids that they're not applying it themselves, that you're applying it to them as well. 
And just like it, I just want to make sure, just like we talked about removing ticks with dogs, we want to make sure that we are doing the same thing as well and removing the ticks the same way um, and taking your time so that we don't cause the infection to go in while you're trying to remove the tick. And Dr. Jones, I'll let you say this because I'm not the expert, but tell folks, please do not spray your pet with off and deet and all that stuff. Yeah, don't. Deet and, and off can be really toxic to pets. Mm-hmm. We have so many, these products have come so far in the last 10 to 15 years. They're extremely safe. They're extremely effective. And just really talk with your vet. There's a lot of different products out there to really choose what's going to work best for your pet's lifestyle. All right, Dr. Duffy Jones, doctor of veterinary medicine and founder of Peachtree Hills Animal Hospital and Dr. Gwyneth Francis, infectious disease doctor with Piedmont. Good conversation, good information. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you all do as well. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Have a great day. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our intern is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer for the day was Shelly Canavy. We're back. Got the band together again, Shelly. Shelly's like, yeah, right, Rose. <laughs> we appreciate it. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.